We began last week to look at Romans chapter 5 and its central message about our security in Christ, our security in God's love because of Christ. And that because of the truth that Paul has given us in Romans 3 and 4 about how you and I as believers can stand justified before God through the work of Christ on the cross, there are certain benefits, certain guarantees that come to us because of that justification. And Romans 5 is, at least the first half of it in the first 11 verses, is largely dedicated to summing up all of those benefits and all of those guarantees for us. Certain riches or advantages that are confirmed and protected and secured for us as Paul's dealing with it in these few verses. Of course, we hear those kinds of things and we hear about how God loves us. And yet we can still be inclined to doubt the love of God, particularly in times of difficulty, when there's disappointment over the way our course of life has traveled, when there's loss, when there's failure, to try to understand God's love, comprehend it, to believe it and hold to it can be difficult. And yet it's in those times that we find ourselves looking for evidences and assurances and guarantees, and it's during those times that the very truths Paul is giving us here become so core to what ought to be filling our hearts and minds. Because Paul's discussion about the security and the love of God and the benefits and the guarantees and all these blessings don't simply exist in times of comfort and ease. Paul, in other words, he doesn't bypass the sufferings and difficulties of life. He doesn't ignore them. In fact, it's right in the midst of those trials that Paul takes us in this chapter to say that not only is God's love still a reality in times of difficulty, but it is in fact actively using or being used, or God is using those, per- those times, I should say, for His purposes. And the evidence of His love is right in front of us, even during those seasons. Now, Paul's discussion of those difficulties really comes in the midst, as I said, of this entire list of, of, of guarantees that uh, come because of justification we started to look at last week. You remember, first of all, in verse 1, he mentions how because we have been justified, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, first of all, peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're born, as we saw, under God's wrath. We're born, verse 10 even makes reference to it, as enemies of God. But because of justification, we are now and forever in a relationship of peace so that any and all of God's anger has been completely appeased through the cross of Christ. And then secondly, a second guarantee, if you will, from this justification from the Lord's death and resurrection, Paul mentions in verse 2, which we outlined as the security we have in grace. Paul says, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, a grace in which we stand. 
We've been brought, in other words, into a realm, into a sphere of grace. We are now in our standing, or we might say in our position before God, defined by grace, as opposed to what? As opposed to law, as opposed to performance, as opposed to God thinking about you this way on this day because of this performance or that way on that day because of that performance. That no longer defines your relationship with God. Your relationship with God now is defined by grace. And it's into this grace that we have access and in this grace in which we stand in which we are confirmed because of justification. In other words, your relationship with God is now not a passing or occasional event. It's not as if God opens himself up to you at certain times and closes himself off from you at other times. Though your heart may deceive you, Though your emotions may trick you into thinking that sometimes, though your circumstances might lead you to suspect that God has cut you off, the scripture proclaims that you are standing now forever in this place of grace. You don't just visit the court of God, you dwell there. The temple isn't just a place you go occasionally, it is your home. You dwell there with God Not in some precarious and sporadic uh, relationship, but in a continuous and unassailable security with Him. Now, if those were the only two benefits that Paul had to present to us, it would be glorious enough. And these two verses would be some of the more memorable in all of Christian literature. But he doesn't stop just there. He moves on. Not only talking about God having established this peace and not only talking about this state of grace which has come to us so firmly, but looking beyond that past peace and looking beyond our current state of grace, Paul now cast his vision into the future looking at a hope of coming Glory, which is really the third guarantee that he discusses here in verses 2 and 3 when he moves to talk about this hope of glory that is now ours. Or he says there at the end of verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. We rejoice in the hope of glory. There are really three components of that. Three components of the statement. There is joy, there is hope, and there is Glory, And we'd be best to probably think about them in reverse order, if you will, because really it's all founded on this idea of glory. You say, well, what is glory? I mean, I hear that word a lot. I hear people sing it a lot. I might hear people shout it a lot, but, but what is it? What is glory, at least in a biblical sense? Well, Paul brings it up not only here, but Over in chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over just a couple chapters. I mentioned to you last week the number of parallels that come in Romans 5 and Romans 8, indicating that this is really one long section dealing with, if you will, the securities that we have in Christ. 
But Romans chapter 8 returns to this idea of glory. And, and in verse 18, you'll read where Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For, verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of, of God. Down in verse 21, he talks about how the creation itself will be set free from one day from the bondage to its corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So without getting into too much detail here, Paul is telling us that there's a glory that's coming. It's something in the future. It's something that isn't fully revealed, that is, it isn't fully uh, uh, visible at this point. It's not something that we could point to in all of its evidences right now. But it's going to be revealed, he says. It's going to be revealed not only for us, but really for, for all of creation. And in that time, there's going to be freedom. A freedom that's accompanying the glory of the children of God. All of those phrases are, are, are really a part of what theologians summarize as simply the glorification of of Christians. We speak about salvation, we speak about sanctification, and we also speak about glorification. And you see it all sort of tied there together in verse 29 of chapter 8, when Paul speaks about those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And in order that he might make him the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want you to pay attention to what it's saying here, because as we just established in verses 18, 19, 21, Paul, speaking about glorification, speaks about it very clearly as a future event. It is something that hasn't been revealed. It's something for which creation is groaning and longing and waiting. It's something that's going to be manifest one day. It's something that is yet to be. And yet when you come to this, verses 29 and 30, he speaks about it now in what kind of tense? Past tense. Past tense. Because it is something that is, as he says there, predestined by God. This is something that God has already determined in His sovereignty, in His power, in His majesty, and in His righteousness to do. So that Paul can speak about it while it hasn't been fully manifest yet, he can speak about it as a settled reality, a settled fact. Past tense. And all that to say there in verse 29 that this glory, this glorification that is to come is really the ultimate manifestation of what He predestined, what happened happened to us. He predestined for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. To put it in very simple terms then, the glory that awaits 
us as believers, the glory that awaits you and I, the glorification of, of Christians, of saints, is simply to inherit the perfect life of Christ. To inherit the perfect, sinless life of Christ. To be conformed to His image. This is what John meant whenever he says in 1 John chapter 3 that we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will, in other words, we will be with Him. We will be in our glorified bodies. We will be in our perfected bodies, our eternal bodies. We'll be in our bodies that are no more shackled by sin. This is the element of freedom that Paul's talking about there in Romans chapter 8. So this is the freedom of the glory of the sons of God, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the the corruption of this world, freedom from all of those things, and all of it summarized under this, this idea of glory, conformed into the image of Christ. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly from which, excuse me, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. So there's a glory that awaits us, and the glory is simply this. It is simply final freedom from temptation Final freedom from sin. Paul Paul says to the Thessalonians that we have been called into God's kingdom and into His glory. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is really the result of our our, our Lord's prayer himself, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, John chapter 17, he prays to the Heavenly Father and he says, the the glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. This is our destiny. This is what we have been predestined to receive, to receive this perfect body, this glorified body, this sinless state, this state of bliss in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. All putting on display a life likened unto Christ. Back over in Romans chapter 5 then, Paul says that this glory is something in which we hope, which is the second component of his phrase there, we hope for glory. Not in the sense that you might normally use hope, like you say, you know, I hope next weekend, you know, the weather will be nice, or I hope, you know, next year to, to uh, uh, exercise more, or whatever it might be that, that has uh, plenty of element of speculation and doubt embedded in it. That's not what this word means in the biblical sense. Paul's not describing anything that is supposed to be doubtful here. He's talking about, in, in, a, in a New Testament sense, the word hope, elpis is the word, it's a word for confident assurance. And what he's saying here is that we are confident, 
we're confident and assured that one day, no matter what is going on in our life right now, no matter what kind of failures and disappointments you're having to deal with right now, no matter how much your guilty conscience may plague you right now, one day you are confident to be absolutely free from all that now burdens you in your sin. And because of that, he says, we rejoice. We rejoice. We're confident, of course, in all of this because it's built not on our own works. It's not built on our own performance. It's built, as all of this is, on the satisfactory work of Christ, the complete work of His justification. So that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how badly we fail to live up to those standards of perfection in this life, this life of glorification awaits us and we're confident in it. And all of it brings this third component that Paul speaks of here, which is joy. Or rejoicing, as some versions say. New American Standard has the word exult, indicating a, a particularly exuberant kind of joy. But the word is actually kalkomai. Kalkomai. Which is normally translated as boasting. This is our boast. In fact, in, in some context, it's, it's a reference to arrogant boasting. But it's used in a neutral sense sometimes, just simply as this uh, one Greek lexicon defines it as an unusually high degree of confidence in something or in someone. This, this confidence, we express confidence in this hope of glory. The reason it's translated rejoice here is because it's the same word that Paul uses in verse 3 in contrast to suffering. We rejoice in suffering. Same word, the word confidence, the word kalkomai. And it's used really there to indicate some response that wouldn't be expected during a time of grief or suffering. It's used to describe the, what is contrary to what's to be expected, something like joy or peace or confidence during those times. And so we might combine both of these ideas of confidence and maybe joy and speak perhaps of confident joy or even confident peace which really is the next guarantee that Paul is highlighting for us in this passage. In verses 3 and 4, confident joy in suffering. This is one of our guarantees. This is one of our benefits. This is what comes to us because of the work of Christ. As he says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice or we're bold or we're confident in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Paul understands that the main problem we have in understanding and in believing all of these great truths, the main issue that we have when it comes to everything we hear in sermons and in Sunday schools and in church about all that Christ does for us, the main problem we have in security that we're supposed to have in Christ is sometimes the incongruence between everything we hear, everything we sing about the love of God, and sometimes 
the circumstances that we find ourselves in. The difficulties and the strains and the suffering and the pain of life that seems to us incongruent with the promises. When we go to the doctor and we hear a diagnosis for cancer, when we when we come home one, one night and our wife tells us that she doesn't want to be with us anymore, when our children uh, go off and want, ha- want to have nothing to do with us anymore, when we go to work and our, our employer tells us that they're done with us, they have no more need of our services, when we get the note in the mail and the bank tells us that they have to repossess the house or the car, when our friends turn their backs on us, begin to rail against us, betray us. And it's in those times that we were challenged to really believe all these promises of God's goodness, all of this confident boasting that He really is at peace with us, that somehow God hasn't turned against us, that somehow this isn't all some divine form of punishment, some cruel joke, something brought into our life because of some sin that we had in our past or sometimes even in our present, that somehow we have pushed it too far, we've gone beyond the limits and God has finally cast us off. Paul understands that it's in times of suffering when we are in fact challenged to really believe these things that we hear. And so he wants us to understand that that these truths are not only for times of ease and comfort. These are truths that we embrace, truths that we live by, truths that we stand on, even during times of difficulty and loss. In that way, we're no different than Abraham that he talked about so extensively in chapter 4, who endured the difficulty of a life of of no children, a barren wife, the ridicule that would have come to it, the disappointment for all the dreams that he might have had for his family. And yet he didn't lose heart. We saw back in chapter 4 and down in verse 20 that his faith did not waver But he grew strong in his belief because of the trials. And so Paul wants you to understand that this confident assurance, this joy, doesn't simply come when things are going your way. In fact, we have this joy, we have this joyful confidence in our sufferings. We don't take the sufferings and we don't take the pains and we don't take the difficulties as signs that somehow justification didn't work or signs that somehow the peace is no longer there. No, Paul says we face them with joy because we understand that even even in the suffering, God has a purpose that he's working out within us. In fact, you'll notice the condition that Paul establishes for this joyful confidence right there in verse 3, knowing. We're confident joy because of something we know. And what is it that we know? He says, we know that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character and character produces hope. In other words, hope cannot be expressed. Hope cannot be found except in hopeless circumstances. Hope is only found in hopeless circumstances. Hope, faith, all those things are like muscles which are only strengthened, or or we might even say would never be strong if they were never used. It is in suffering. It is in pain. It is in trial that you begin to show, that you begin to exercise a fortitude in your faith and your hope by the constant reaffirmation in the midst of hopeless circumstances, that you do trust God's goodness, that you do trust in justification, that you do trust in the cross. As we said, this is the example of Abraham that Paul has already set forth there in chapter 4, 18, and 19, speaking about how Abraham in hope believed against hope, against all that the world would have told him was a hopeless situation in, in the barrenness of his wife, in the, in, the, in the old age that he had reached, how he would never see the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet he believed. In hope he believed. There's a story told of a man who during the Great Depression lost his job. And because of that he lost his fortune and his home. And because of that, he eventually lost his wife. But he was a believer in Jesus Christ. He clung to his faith tenaciously, even though he couldn't see the purpose and everything that was happening to him. He didn't understand why God would take all of these things from him. But one day in the midst of his depression, he was wandering through the city. And he stopped to watch some masons doing stonework on a huge church. One was chiseling a little triangle piece down on the sidewalk there. And he watched him chisel away at it for a while. And he asked him, what are you doing? The workman stopped. He took his eyes off of the uh, stone for a moment. And he looked up into the sky at the very apex of the tower. And he said, you see that little place right up there? He said, well, I'm working on this down here so that it will fit up there. And the man understood. God helped him to understand what was taking place in his life. That God was working on him down here. So that when he got up there, he would fit. So his faith, having been tried and tested, would bring glory to God. So that all the praise that's going to emanate from heaven for all of time would have true voice behind it. So that when people speak about the grace of God, they speak from experience, not from hypothesis. You see, we get into difficulties and we immediately are tempted to think that God and His promises and His guarantees somehow have been lost. We doubt whether He still really wants to reconcile with us, we begin to think perhaps God has gone back to war. Perhaps He is now our antagonist. We wonder whether or not we still stand in grace. We wonder whether or not we're being judged by the law. We doubt God's ultimate plan for our glorification. 
But Paul wants us to understand that far from being set aside, the sufferings are actually a part. They're actually a part of this guarantee. They're a part of it. In fact, go back over to Romans chapter 8. We, we just referenced it in um, verse 18. But look back at verse 17 when Paul says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. Jesus Christ, in all the glory that He knows at the right hand of the Father, before He ever returned to glory, He returned down a pathway of suffering. And so what makes you think that you ought to be any different? What makes you think that you shouldn't be rejected? What makes you think that you shouldn't be tried? How will your faith be proven unless it is tested? And this is what Paul's talking about over in Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces endurance. That is its natural effect. If you haven't suffered... How could you ever say you're endured? You've endured, I should say. I mean, you can't very well come along and say, I just endured a 10-yard run. No, you endure a 26-mile marathon, right? You don't endure a 10-yard run. It's a little bit like the guy who says, yeah, you know, he, he's talking about his mansion. Oh, I have to endure the walk from the east wing, you know, past my sauna and my built-in theater and my gymnasium on the right to my gourmet kitchen where my cook has prepared my breakfast. You haven't endured anything. That's not endurance. How can you say that you have endured anything unless you've been through it? And so Paul's saying here, this is what suffering does. It produces a testimony. It produces a testimony of endurance. The word is hupomone. It means to, it takes the word for, uh, for under and the word for uh, remaining or living somewhere. And it talks about living under something, living under circumstances. You see, the problem with so many of you who somewhere along the way have made a profession of faith in Christ, somewhere in your home, somewhere in the warmth and the comfort of a church building or something, is whatever faith you have has not been tested. It's not been tested. And so you should take serious time to examine your faith. Because if it hasn't suffered, it hasn't endured. And if it hasn't endured, it may be spurious. This is what Paul says. We will be glorified with Him if, if we suffer with Him. Suffering results in endurance. It results in steadfastness, perseverance, or whatever it might be. 
And by going through the trial, we build the endurance, we demonstrate the endurance, and that does what? It produces character. It produces character. The word is dokumen. It's actually a word for, for testing metals for the sake of proving their genuineness. And so this endurance results in proven character. It, it demonstrates, it proves, it brings out a character, by the way, that will be filled with uh, its ultimate, or I should say a character that will find its ultimate expression in glorified bodies, but God is bringing it out even right now. God is preparing you right now, right here, so that you will fit up there. So that your character might be proven, might be genuine, might be manifest. So that your songs of praise might be filled by the goodness and the faithfulness of God. God is stripping away all that is not of any value to Him, all that is not of any value to His kingdom, all that is temporal, all that is sinful. God is stripping all that stuff away, chiseling it out of your life. So that he can, at the end of the day, unearth and bring to the surface the kind of character that magnifies his name. Job sensed it. He says in the midst of his troubles in Job 23, when he has tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Tribulation does this. Suffering does this. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we understand what Paul says. Even there in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. We rejoice in the hope of glory, knowing that suffering produces these kinds of things and prepares us for it. Or we might say patience and character come from allowing God to prove Himself as much as it is proving us, proving Himself time and time again, seeing God prove His faithfulness and confirm His love and, and ultimately establish the truthfulness of the work of Christ, which is really ultimately where the string ends for the Apostle Paul there in Romans chapter 5. He says this character is tried, is proven in our, uh, 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 in our trials and our suffering, and all this brings about or produces, he says there, hope. It produces at the end of verse 4, hope. There's no other way to demonstrate this kind of hope except in these kinds of hopeless situations. There's no other way to exercise faith and confidence in God except in times of fear and uncertainty and suffering. And so remember, this whole thing is describing what we know. We know that suffering does this. And so because we know it, when we fall into various trials, it isn't supposed to shake your confidence. 
In fact, it's supposed to confirm it. It's supposed to confirm. Because as Hebrews chapter 12 says, if you're without discipline, you're not a son. Every son whom his father loves, he disciplines. And so if you're not without this kind of work going on in your life, you have serious reason to doubt. But we have confidence, we have boldness, we have joy. Folks, this is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not knowing a bunch of verses. Spiritual maturity is not necessarily, you know, articulating a systematic theology or following a doctrinal statement or, or even, you know, doing a, a few good deeds around the church. Spiritual maturity is endurance. It is endurance through hard times, endurance through times of, of questioning and doubt and attack and all those things. This is maturity. This is what Paul says God is doing for us as we await our glorification. There's no other way to have our faith and our hope and our trust in the doctrine of justification proven unless it's tested against all those things that would make us doubt the grace of God. Others may doubt God's love for us, but we will not because we understand that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That brings us to the fifth guarantee of this doctrine of justification in verse 5 all the way through 10, which is really the assurance of love. The assurance of love. Paul understands the questions that come into our minds during these times. He understands the natural mind, that the evidence of God's love that we're looking for, that we're questioning. But for the one who's mature, it really shouldn't be questionable. Because God has given you two very strong indicators of His love. Two very powerful demonstrations, two very powerful evidences of love that Paul gives beginning in verse 5. One is the work of the Holy Spirit and the other is the work of Christ on the cross. That's what he talks about. First of all, hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then second, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There, in a short uh, way, are the two uh, unassailable evidences that we cling to in times of difficulty that assure us of the love of God. And it's all the assurance we really should ever need in times of doubt, in barren times when it seems perhaps like your prayers are not getting through to God, when you may begin to wonder why God doesn't appear to be doing anything to save you or deliver you from your circumstances, and you wish that God could give you some sign that He still cares for you, Paul is telling you He's already done that. He did it first of all. By the Holy Spirit, verse 5, the Holy Spirit, uh, or, or through the Holy Spirit, God's love has been poured out in our hearts. The Holy Spirit does something supernatural when we come to believe. He pours out, He pours over, He drenches us, if you will, in the love of God. It's, it's a word 
uh, literally for pouring out a liquid container, but it has the idea of completeness or, or, or um, um, totality. And so it came to be used figuratively in the Greek language as, as, as the experiencing of something completely or fully. So Paul's saying that when we come to Christ... We experience in our inner man the love of God in such a complete way that our hope is confirmed. It's not always something you can put into words, and it's not always something you can explain to family and friends and acquaintances who are watching you go through your ordeal. But in your inner man, you simply just know that God loves you. You know that he has the words of life. It's similar to the apostles in John chapter 6 who had ridden an emotional roller coaster of events that were recorded in that chapter. They go out one day and watch Jesus miraculously multiply just a few little loaves, bread, and fish, and feed 5,000 people with it. And then there's a sense of euphoria in the Lord's goodness, and everyone is sort of swept up into the excitement of everything that God is doing around them. And on a, on a whim, they decide to rush forward and seize Jesus and crown Him and make Him their King. The disciples must have been ecstatic. I mean, this was everything they had hoped for. This is everything they had dreamed of, that, that everyone would be embracing the vision and the excitement of Jesus all around them. They had to be just thrilled with what's going on. Jesus slips through the crowd and enters a boat and crosses to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when the crowds follow him over there and eventually find him, he starts to say to them, look, if you want to follow me, you don't only have to eat the bread that I provided that just perishes and goes away but you need to eat my flesh you need to drink my blood in other words he says all the wrong things at least in the disciples mind they had to be on the side wait 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 everything was going so good why mess it up why do all that why ruin all this for us eventually the crowd start to grumble talk back challenge, and then just leave. And thousands of people depart. And Jesus is left apparently with just his disciples in the end. A roller coaster from God's goodness to the depths of disappointment. And John 6 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, I'm not sure the disciples could even fully explain everything that Jesus had said to the crowds. I'm not sure they fully comprehended what all this meant about drinking his blood and eating his flesh and him having to die and be resurrected and all that stuff. They weren't exactly sure what just happened to them, how they just got waylaid in all of their expectations for life. They just got dashed and yanked down from their high hopes. 
But still, all they knew was there was nowhere else they could go. Nowhere else they could go. And so when you enter into trials, we remember this undeniable, unexplainable experience when the Holy Spirit absolutely flooded our hearts with God's love. It may not be as real and as tangible at this moment as you're dealing with your suffering, but it was an undeniable experience for you. The Holy Spirit poured out His love in a moment you can't forget. Probably similar kind of thing to what Paul gets at in Romans 8.16 when he says this, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children were heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him. So somehow, some way in the midst of this suffering, the Spirit is bearing witness, is telling us that we are God's children, that we have been adopted into His family, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts in a way that no one could ever tell us it wasn't. When I was a young man, I was 17 years old when I came to know Christ. And I uh, had no foundation in the church, no discipleship, no training, no knowledge. I didn't know who, you know, I didn't know the name of Paul's wife. I didn't know, you know, the name of the 13 disciples. I didn't know anything. And so, you know, I was trying to get as much knowledge as I could, searching out all the answers I could. And very early on, a guy offered to help me. So he invited me into his office at a little church that sits right down the street from our high school. And I would go down there after school and he would take time and open up the Bible and read to me and just fascinating stuff. I felt like I was learning so much and it seemed, seemed like the scriptures were sort of, you know, making sense to me and all these things until one day he said, well, um, the problem here is that in order to be saved, you actually need to be baptized in our church. I said, say that again? Yeah, in order to be saved, you actually have to be baptized in a church of Christ. Now, I didn't know much at all. And I definitely couldn't have stood toe-to-toe with this guy and battled on any of those scriptures. But I knew one thing. I knew the love of God had been poured out into my heart in an undeniable experience. And he might have had all kinds of scriptures he could twist around my neck and try to strangle me with, but there was one thing he was not going to convince me of, and that was the fact that I was not saved. See, we fall in these times, and sometimes that's all we have to cling to. Sometimes we don't always even know how to make sense out of our circumstances. Honestly, sometimes not even out of some scriptures we can make sense. But yet the Holy Spirit works. And He testifies to our spirit that we're the children of God. And it comes to us as an undeniable evidence. Paul says, in hope, this is what happens. God sheds this abroad in our hearts. Well, there's a second evidence of God's love that stands undeniably over us, even during our sufferings, removes all doubt 
about God's love for us, and that's the work of Christ on the cross. And it'll have to wait for more time next week. Let's uh, stand together and be dismissed. As you're standing, there's no doubt that some of you who are standing right now who are here, and you couldn't have that kind of confidence, you couldn't have that kind of assurance. If someone were to come to you and say, you know what, I don't think you're saved, you wouldn't feel assured, you'd feel exposed. Because all this stuff that we're talking about, the Holy Spirit working in your heart, shedding God's love abroad, all of this justification, this peace with God, you don't sense it, you don't know it, because you haven't come to know God yet. Our challenge to you today is that all these benefits, all of these guarantees can be equally yours, relationship with God, peace with God, and glory that awaits you in heaven. They can be yours if you'll lay your heart before God in repentance and put your trust in Christ. The scripture says that if you believe uh, in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. And so our invitation to you this morning, we don't have an altar call, but we have an invitation that you would respond to that call, that you would believe in God today. And when we close in a word of prayer, if you'd like to maybe spend some time with me or one of our teachers or elders, please feel free to approach any of us. We would take whatever time is necessary to sit down with you, explain to you whatever questions you have from the Scripture so that you can know this gospel, so that you can know this peace. Father, we're grateful for this, another reminder of these guarantees that come to us, the glory that awaits us and the glory we get to taste and experience partially even now. And with that, Lord, we do rejoice in suffering and trial. We rejoice in loss and in difficulty because we know that even those are part of your plan, preparing us, fashioning us, making us and proving us so that we can bring glory to your name. Lord, I pray for those saints among us today who are in the midst of those trials, that these words would sink deep into their hearts. They would leave here with a song, with a word of praise, with a heart full of the richness of your grace. And that your name would be forever in the bedrock of our soul and the work of Christ would be our trust. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.